Hi, I'm Jonathan Gross, an almost PhD from Emory University's Graduate Division of Religion, and with any luck, by the time you're actually watching these lectures, I will officially be Dr. Gross. My name is Jonathan, but I usually go by John, and as luck would have it, I'm talking about the Gospel of John with you for the next few weeks. In fact, I've been told by one professor of New Testament that I have a Johannine aura about me. And that's how he remembered that my name is John. I don't know what a Johannine aura is. I'm not sure what he meant by that. I don't really know if that's accurate because I'm not the kind of person who's about to talk about things with the kind of ethereal language that John likes to use. Uh, John, the author of the fourth gospel, likes to use. But in any case... I am John, and I'm here to talk about the Gospel of John. This course that uh, I'm going to be taking you through, it's part of St. Luke's You, and the slogan for that is, Where You Become a Disciple. So the angle that I will take in these explorations of the Gospel of John is one that I find especially useful for being a disciple of Jesus, particularly in the time that we're in now. As we all know, we live in a time of increasing ideological and political divisiveness. Sometimes the divisions and polarization we see today can cut across and within friendships and families and even churches. So I think it's appropriate, given the challenges of our current climate, to focus on features of the Gospel of John that best address this problem of ever-escalating division. You see, the Gospel of John was written for a specific community, and that community was facing all kinds of division and turmoil. Scholars refer to the recipients of the fourth gospel and of the letters known as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as the Johannine community. That community was no stranger to tumult or division. They probably started out as everyday synagogue-attending Jews who were then expelled from their faith communities once they had committed to believing that Jesus was the Messiah. They were no strangers to division, to estrangement from people that they once knew deeply. On top of that, scholars of the Gospel and letters of John agree that there were probably schisms and disagreements within and among Christians within that community. The story of the Johannine community is one where this command from John 13.34 is nothing short of radical, where Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John's theology for building a community familiar with division rests on his understanding of Jesus. Of all the documents in the New Testament, the Gospel of John might be the one with the most robust picture of the Incarnation, that is, the doctrine that God became human and interacted with people face to face as one of us. John tells us about a Jesus who transcended the unfathomable divide between human and divine, between earth and heaven. John tells stories of this Jesus, the bridge of ultimate divides to a community that is, much like our own, deeply familiar with division. And so that's why... A title for this course could be something like this, The Gospel According to John, Meeting Jesus in a Divided World. So here is a roadmap of this series of lectures on the Gospel of John that we're going to take. First, today, we're introducing the fourth gospel. Then, next week, we're going to have something called The Crisis of the Encounter. There, we explore some of Jesus' encounters with individuals. We'll get a look at how the arrival of Jesus shapes an individual person. And in doing so, I hope we'll get a chance to see ourselves and the people that Jesus talks to.
Then for the third session, we're going to move from the individual level to the communal level. We'll see how the community of Johannine Christians is a group of outsiders facing external pressures from other communities. And yet, John has a place for challenging outsiders, that is people who are outsiders with respect to his community, to then become insiders. And as a result, we have a community where all of the outsiders are inside. And while that third lecture is going to take a look at the external pressures faced by the Johannine community, the next one after that is going to focus on internal pressures. Our second to last session will discuss the community instructions and Jesus's farewell discourse, keeping in mind that it can be hardest to love the people who are in fact closest to us, we will see how Jesus's instructions to the disciples in John 13 through 17 are actually pretty radical. And then with a final lecture, we'll look at the death of Jesus. We will see how John views Jesus's death as Jesus's glorification. And we will see how the death of Jesus cements some of the concepts about incarnation and community formation that occur throughout the gospel. Today, though, our discussion is called Introducing the Gospel of John. And this lecture is going to have two parts. In the first part, I'm going to go over matters of scholarly introduction for the Gospel of John. When talking about a biblical text's introduction, Bible scholars usually have something very specific in mind. Typically, an introduction in this specific sense refers to the material about a biblical book you might find in a textbook called an introduction to the Old or New Testament. Such an introduction will provide its author's best attempt to fill the reader in on the who, what, where, when, why, and how questions pertaining to a book of the Bible, like who wrote it? Why? Uh, from where were they writing? To whom and to where were they writing? What sources and traditions were they using and how did they put those sources together? So we'll go over a portion of that first. Then, after taking a look at this sort of scholarly introduction to the Gospel of John, we'll then look at the introduction to the Gospel that was composed by the evangelist himself. We'll take a look at the Gospel's prologue which is the first 18 verses of this book. The prologue is John's own way of introducing his gospel. And in it, we're going to see some of the themes that run throughout this gospel, including themes of incarnation and community that we'll emphasize in our exploration of the gospel of John over the next few weeks. So to jump right in to introducing this gospel, first question is, what is the gospel of John? And a really simple way to answer the question is the gospel of John is a gospel. And by that, I mean that the gospel of John, even though its content is going to be a little bit different than what we see in the other three gospels, the gospel according to John really has the same kind of format that we're used to seeing in the other three gospels. So one New Testament theologian, Martin Kaler, has famously described the gospel of Mark as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. A passion narrative, that is the story of the suffering and the death of Jesus. Passion is just Latin for suffering. 
And the Gospel of John actually fits that description. The Gospel of Mark, the first half, talks about Jesus' miracles and his ministry. And the second half mainly revolves around the suffering and the betrayal and the death of Jesus with a little bit about Jesus' resurrection at the end. The Gospel of John really fits that two-part format very cleanly. So I can show you right here, the Gospel of John's outline can really be summarized, I think, quite conveniently with uh, the text of chapter 1, verse 5. So the book cleanly divides into two halves, at least relatively cleanly divides into two halves. Chapters 1 through 11, often called the Book of Signs, illustrates that the light shines in the darkness. And then chapters 12 through 21, showing the death and resurrection of Jesus shows how the darkness has not overcome the light. Much like the Gospel of Mark, the first half of the Gospel of John focuses on Jesus' ministry and his teachings. So after the prologue in verses 1, 1 through 18, we have Jesus uh, select his disciples. And then in chapters 2 through 11, we see the testimony of signs, that is these miraculous events, and discourses, which are these long teachings where Jesus explains the significance of the signs that he presented to people. So this right here is an outline of chapters 2 through 11 of the Gospel of John. And so you can see that we have first sign number one, turning water into wine, um, and then the discourse where Jesus talks about being born again, and then he talks about living water with a Samaritan woman. Um, and then in chapter 6, we have Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then he talks at length about how he himself is the bread of life. Um, and sometimes the signs and the discourses can be related to each other pretty organically, sort of how like the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus multiplies bread, and then uh, he has the bread of life discourse after that. Sometimes it's a little harder to see the relationship between sign and discourse, but that's what's going on in the first half of the Gospel of John. And chronologically, uh, just because of the placement of various annual Jewish festivals throughout these events, it's this book of signs that actually gives us the idea that Jesus' ministry lasted multiple years. Because based on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a person might actually be able to conclude that Jesus' ministry only lasted a few months. It's the Gospel of John that puts us kind of on a three-year calendar. And that three-year calendar runs through chapters uh, 1 through 11. But then um, when we get into chapter 12, we're really focused only on the last week of Jesus's life. So it's pretty much chapters 12 through 21 is for the most part focused on Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. I guess really I should say 12 through 20 is focused on that. And so uh, we have Jesus's anointing, his Palm Sunday entry to Jerusalem in chapter 12, and then chapters 13 through 19, those are just... Uh, Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. They're the last night of Jesus's life and the day of his crucifixion. And so, like I said, how Martin Kaler characterizes the Gospel of Mark as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. In a lot of ways, that description really fits the Gospel of John because at the center of it is Jesus's last night and then his crucifixion. And that takes up a really big portion of the narrative space in the Gospel of John. 
even though the Gospel of John at a macro level kind of has the same structure as the Gospel of Mark, it's pretty easy to tell that the Gospel of John is different than the other three. So if you read the beginnings of each of the four Gospels, you'll notice right away that the Gospel of John stands out. Mark and Luke get into the storytelling pretty much right away, even though they start at, at different points. Uh, and because the way Matthew likes to stress the continuity between the story of the Old Testament and the story of Jesus, Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy and then moves into the Christmas story um, sort of the way Luke does. But John is different. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all include many of the same stories at many points matching each other verbatim or close to it because Matthew and Luke each used Mark as a source for their writing. So for that reason, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic gospels because synoptic is Greek for see together. And those first three gospels are together in how they see stories about Jesus. But John is different. While the fourth gospel has many of the same stories as the synoptics, like the temple cleansing, the feeding of the 5,000, Peter's denial, and the crucifixion of Jesus, John tends to tell them in his own way, and he includes many miracles, dialogues, and explanatory digressions that don't exist in those other gospels. So, you know, things like Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus or Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman, those are going to be unique to the gospel of John. One of the things that sets apart John is that it has distinctive language. It has a lot of unique stories and dialogues. A lot of the red letter material of Jesus is unique to the fourth gospel. You don't have exorcisms. If you read through the gospel of Mark, there's a demon getting pushed out of someone on every other page. And John maybe just decided that he wanted to be a little more seeker sensitive and not include the demon material. Something like that. But John doesn't include exorcisms in his gospel. And then he also tends not to foreground the scandal of Jesus hanging out with sinners or with low-class people. But when we take a look at the uh, discussion between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, we do see some of that kind of social status boundary breaking going on a little bit. But it's not foregrounded in the way that it is, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Also in the Gospel of John, we don't have parables. That's an important literary form for the Synoptic Gospels, and that's one that Jesus doesn't really use in the Gospel of John. We have Jesus use elaborate metaphors. We have him use illustrations, but we never see something called a paraboli. That's the Greek word that parable comes from. And so we don't have parables. And then the verbal, like the verbatim word-for-word -word overlap that you see a lot of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't really have a whole lot of that going on in the Gospel of John. So the fourth gospel is a unique retelling of the Jesus story, probably familiar with the other three gospels, but not necessarily drawing on them as a source for how the story of Jesus should be told. And so a natural question to have from this is why? What was John's purpose? Or I guess I should say, what were the writer's purposes in constructing a new gospel for their community? Well, one thing that's really convenient about the Gospel of John is right before chapter 21, which is kind of an appendix to the fourth gospel, there is a purpose statement. It's at the end of chapter 20, right after telling the story of Jesus' resurrection, and we get this very convenient sort of, this is why the gospel was written. 
So that purpose statement goes something like this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So one of the purposes of the Gospel of John, and this is a purpose that I think really continues to emerge in the way that modern Christians today will use this gospel, is evangelism. And so one of the things that is pretty clear to a lot of scholars is that the fourth gospel, even though it tries to do a little bit of apologetic in the sense of showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish tradition and Jewish hopes, the fourth gospel is also pretty friendly to a Gentile audience. We have a lot of places where John is explaining Jewish customs for people who aren't familiar with them. And so, especially because of the lack of exorcisms, which, you know, can be a little bit of a turnoff to people who aren't sort of already worried about the the demonic world, and... um, because of its explanation of Jewish tradition, it seems like it was really built to kind of win over a largely Gentile audience. But another really big critical purpose of the fourth gospel is something that we see throughout. And this is just one verse of several that, or one passage of several that I could show you from the fourth gospel. And that is showing how the story of Jesus comforts a beleaguered community. So John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And right before that, Jesus warns his disciples of a time coming, and that in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home, you'll leave. And so I think in the literary context, John 16, 32, that scattering of the disciples is talking about Jesus' disciples leaving Jesus' side at the moment of his crucifixion. But I think that scattering to the community of Christians for whom this gospel was custom written, that community had already experienced scattering and division that maybe wasn't necessarily something that they volunteered for. So we have in 20, 30, and 31, we can see that the fourth gospel kind of has an evangelistic purpose. But then from things like 1631 through 33, or even in 1518, where Jesus tells his disciples, hey, if the world hates you, they hated me first. In the beginning of John 16, he says, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, they're going to kick you out of the synagogues, which might be a word of comfort for Johanna and Christians who have already been expelled from the synagogues that they may have come from, we have the second major purpose of the Gospel of John, which is comforting a beleaguered congregation. John opens this gospel of his that was written to evangelize to potential new believers and to comfort a beleaguered community. John begins this gospel with a prologue. And that prologue is one of the explanatory digressions that is unique to the gospel of John. There is nothing quite like it in the rest of the gospels. It is richly theological. In fact, it is a cornerstone of Christian orthodoxy across all variations of Christian tradition. 
because this passage gives a really unique window into the relationship between God as creator and God as Christ. This passage is really a cornerstone of Christian Trinitarian theology. Now, because of that, the amount of ink that has been spilled on the prologue to the Gospel of John is just absolutely monumental, and we're not really going to do much more than scratching the surface. So what we're going to do today is we're going to get into three themes that come through, I think, pretty clearly in the Gospel of John that are then going to launch and guide us into seeing how the fourth gospel can address a church that's trying to do its best in a time of unusually sharp social and ideological division. So those three themes are going to be the following. First, Jesus is the creator God who appears in the flesh. And so we have that theme come in the first five verses and then in verse 18 of the gospel's prologue. So this idea of Jesus as God himself, as the revealer of God, that is at the very beginning and the very end of this prologue. Second theme, which is right after the beginning and right before the end, is that Jesus, because he is the creator God in the flesh, Jesus is also the latest and greatest revelation of who God is. And so in verses 6 through 8 and 15, we have that Jesus is the light coming into the world, contrasting with John the Baptist, who is a revered and respected witness to the light, but not the light himself. And then in verses 16 and 17, we have a little bit of the window into the relationship between Moses and Jesus. And so whether we're talking about John the Baptist or whether we're talking about Moses, Jesus is the person that both of those prophetic figures are pointing toward. And that's a theme that comes up a lot later on in the gospel. And then finally, at the very center, we have some text talking about how people accepted Jesus and how people rejected Jesus. And so at the very center of this gospel, we're going to see something that's pretty important to the DNA of the Gospel of John, and that is what happens when an individual or when a community encounters Jesus. And those moments of encountering Jesus, the responses are going to be really polarized. All three of these themes, that Jesus is the creator God in the flesh, that Jesus is the latest and greatest revelation of God, and that responses to Jesus are polarized, these are themes that we're going to see come up again and again and again throughout the Gospel of John. The beginning and the end of the prologue to the fourth gospel gives us a very clear picture of Jesus as creator God. I think of all the places in the New Testament, perhaps with the exception of the throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5, where both God and Jesus receive the same sort of heavenly accolades and worship, this is the spot in the New Testament that I think most clearly attests to the idea that Jesus is God showing up. So we have in verses one through five, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. And so what John is saying is that this creation story that you're so familiar with from Genesis one, in fact, that phrase in the beginning that is also how the book of Genesis begins, and in the original Greek and the Greek translation of the Old, uh, the Old Testament, they match up in exactly the same way. The Septuagint, which is the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, Genesis 1 starts off 
NRK, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1 starts off with, in the beginning, NRK was the word and the word was with God. And so John is saying pretty boldly that that creation story that any uh, Jewish follower of God would be familiar with, that creation story only happens because Jesus is there and Jesus is a part of it. And 114 is going to tell us that this Jesus that people encounter throughout the Gospel of John, that is the creator God. And then that theme wraps up the prologue with verse 18, where John says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, has made God known. And that verb there is exegisato, which means to exegete or to explain. So Jesus is God who shows up as the explainer of who God is. This theme of the divinity of Jesus is a theme that recurs throughout the fourth gospel. So as you turn the pages through the gospel of John, you'll see that this idea that Jesus is God powers a lot of the stories, a lot of the teachings that happen. So in John chapter 8, Jesus sort of mic drops his conversation with uh, his Jewish, I guess, antagonists by saying, before Abraham was, I am, kind of echoing that really strong I am who I am statement that Yahweh makes in Exodus chapter 3. In John chapter 14, at the beginning of the chapter, Philip says, uh, when's the part, Jesus, where you're going to reveal the Father to us? And Jesus says, I've been doing that the whole time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then in John chapter 17, when Jesus is giving what is traditionally called the high priestly prayer, when he's praying for the unity of the community, he uses the unity between himself and God as a sort of template for the kind of unity that should exist between the church and Christ and that people in the church should have among one another. So this idea that Jesus is simultaneously God and the incarnate revealer of God, that proto-Trinitarian theology kind of runs throughout the fourth gospel. And I would say this Trinitarian theology that we have emerging in the first and last pieces of the prologue these are, or this is also the engine of the other two themes that I want us to pick up from the prologue of the fourth gospel. See, that second theme that I mentioned, that Jesus is the latest and greatest revealer of who God is. Jesus is the latest and greatest revealer because he is God showing up. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist because John the Baptist was just pointing to God showing up. And in Jesus, God actually does that. Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than Torah, because Moses and Torah were testifying to, were witnessing to who God is, but Jesus is God himself actually showing up. And then also, the fact that Jesus is God showing up in the flesh, that is also the driver and the engine of the polarized responses that Jesus gets from people. Because... When Jesus shows up, that is the moment 
where God both rescues the people who are desperately seeking God and then also confronts the things that people are holding to that are keeping them from seeing God. And so those polarized responses that people have to Jesus are a direct result of the fact that Jesus is God showing up in person. So let's get into this. Let's get into how Jesus is the latest and greatest revelation of God. And so that's something that we have in uh, the middle parts of the prologue. We have it after the beginning and before the end, but not quite in the center. And so in John 1, 6 through 8, the author of the fourth gospel does this sort of clarifying note. So he's just told us in 1, 3 through 5 that Jesus is the light coming into the darkness and that the darkness has not overcome it. And then he has this sort of parenthetical aside. So all of verses 6 through 8, you can kind of imagine are in parentheses. There was a man sent from God whose name was John who is a witness to testify concerning the light but wasn't the light himself. And then... That sort of parenthetical note and the NIV, which is the translation that I'm using for all of the passages today, actually places it in parentheses. So in verse 15, John testified concerning the word having become flesh. John said, John the Baptist said, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And so in verses six through eight and 15, we have something that gives us a little bit of an insight into the community of the fourth gospel. And look, especially as someone who goes by the name John, look, let me tell you, all of these Johns everywhere, it's about to get a little bit confusing. But let me give you the deal. Okay. So <laughs> there's the fourth gospel. That's the gospel according to John which is so named because it comes from the tradition of John, the apostle of Jesus. It may be related to John, the author of Revelation, who names himself in, one, in chapter 1, verse 9 of Revelation. Uh, but whether or not the John of the Gospels and the John of Revelation is the same, that's kind of a debate that a lot of New Testament scholars have. So we have all of that going on. And then there's also John the Baptist. And it looks as though this community of Christians that follows John the Apostle, some of them really kind of loved John the Baptist as well. And so what the author of the fourth gospel, that is someone writing in the tradition of John the Apostle, whom I've also been lazily referring to as John, I'm sorry. It gets a little bit confusing. But anyway, um, there are a number of Christians who seem to think that John the Baptist might have been maybe the Messiah himself or a messianic figure or might have had just a really, really high view of who John the Baptist is. And so what has to happen in the fourth gospel is we need this sort of clarifying note saying John the Baptist was important, but he wasn't the whole thing. And so we have that sort of clarifying note and the prologue telling us that John is a witness to Jesus, but, or that John the Baptist is a witness to Jesus, uh, but you know, not the light of the world himself. And then also in John chapter three, we have this conversation between Jesus and, the, and John the Baptist, where John the Baptist tell, tells Jesus, 
I must become less, you must become greater. And right as John the Baptist says, I must become less, he just sort of like disappears from the narrative forever and very literarily becomes less. So we have this whole thing where we're trying to clarify, okay, John the Baptist isn't the big deal. Then we also have this thing, and let me just return you to the PowerPoint really quick. We also have this thing where the author of the fourth gospel has to clarify it largely for his Jewish Christians that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. And so what's going on here, out of the fullness of Jesus, we have all received grace and place of grace already given for the law was given through Moses. And so this is what the author of the fourth gospel is trying to tell us. And this is something that's very easy to understand. So one of the things I really like about how the NIV renders John 1.16 is it uh, does a really good job of handling this somewhat tricky Greek phrase, chariti anti charitos. So that's the piece that the NIV translates grace in place of grace already given. You may have been familiar with the translation of the prologue that renders that phrase as grace upon grace. In Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. But that upon isn't really a good way of translating the pronoun anti that goes between those two examples of the word grace. And so anti means in place of. And so it's a really, it's really more accurate to understand kariti anti karitos, that is the last few words of John 1.16. It's really important to understand those as there is grace that is uh, coming in place of another kind of grace. And so what we have is, you know, even though there's this contrast sort of going on between Moses and Jesus in 117. We actually have a really high level of respect for Moses. The law that was given through Moses, the, the author of the fourth gospel is telling us, that is a form of a grace. But then Jesus is the grace that that grace taking the form of the law was pointing to. So this last thing to discuss before we conclude is the way in which Jesus is both polarizing and inviting. And I think paradoxically, the fact that Jesus is polarizing is also the gateway to how Jesus can be unifying. So this is the center of the prologue of the Gospel of John. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And I think there's something really fascinating going on in the interplay between verses 11 and 12. See, I think a lot of us, have a hard time having a genuine encounter with Jesus because we think we are his own. And so I think in a lot of ways, we can be like the Jewish communities that didn't accept Jesus in the first century because we think we already know we're doing the right things. We think we already have our religiosity. We think we already have our theology and our practice figured out. And so what happens is God can be someone under our control because we've done all of the right learning and we've already done all of the right things. But see, 
Jesus forges a community that, as it says in verse 13, is not born of things that human beings can control, is not born of human decision or, you know, a couple deciding, hey, let's have a kid. That's not how the children of God are born, but they're born simply because Jesus arrives and uh, gives the right to everyone who believes in Jesus the opportunity to become a child of God. And so we have this really perplexing thing where uh, Jesus is both polarizing and unifying. Jesus is polarizing because an encounter with Jesus immediately surfaces all of the reasons why people might be ready for Jesus or might they might be afraid of Jesus. But that encounter, that is the same thing for everybody. It's a moment where God shows up and has a direct contact with the truest version of who you are. And so we have this really paradoxical thing going on in the Gospel of John. God shows up in human form, and on the one hand, people's desperation for God's grace or God's or people's resistance to God great to God's grace immediately comes to the surface. But on the other hand, God appearing in human form is the ultimate boundary crosser. God appearing in human form is the ultimate bridge builder. And it says in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, to all of those who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. And so we have Even in these moments of people struggling and people embracing Jesus, everyone who encounters Jesus has this same experience where something really deep about who they are immediately comes to the surface. And the fact that you can have a community that is shaped by people who have all experienced Jesus in this profound way whether it was the greatest experience initially or whether it was the most difficult one, that's something where that polarizing response to Jesus can paradoxically become unifying. We are all unified and that we have all come face to face with God in the flesh and that God in encountering us has surfaced the most challenging parts about who we are as people. And I realize, all right, I'm getting into Johanna and Aura territory. I'm getting into territory where things are getting a little bit ethereal. But don't worry, next week, we're going to get a little bit more concreteness on what I'm talking about. We're going to get an idea of what it means for Jesus to encounter the individual person. We'll see an example of that with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. If there's one thing that I want you to come away from either this lecture or this series of lectures, it's going to be this. It's that Jesus, as God condescending to become human, is the ultimate bridge builder and builds a model for us to create bridges in a divided world. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Your Weekly St. Luke's, our Office Hours podcast. And we are so excited to be joined by the Reverend Mary Downey, who is the CEO of Hope Partnership. Um, And I'll let her tell you a little bit more about what that means. Um, But we are so excited for her to join us um, as we kick off our worship series on um, Where is Love? As we make connections about the Gospel of John, about the incarnation, um, what incarnational uh, and an incarnational ministry life looks like, what we are 
called to as people who follow Jesus in that way. Um, and then our connection with our uh, summer musical, Oliver, um, that we are telling in a different way to, to help us see um, our incarnational opportunities in some ways in how we are being called to be Jesus here in Central Florida. Um, so welcome, Mary. And we're here with Pastor Jen as well. Um, and so Mary, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us um, who you are and, um, you know, the, the, the Cliff Notes version maybe of how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, I'm happy to be with you guys today to share about our work in Central Florida around um, families who are experiencing poverty and homelessness. I am the CEO, as Melissa said, of Hope Partnership, and our job is to make sure that everybody has a safe place to call home. Uh, and we do that in a lot of different ways, uh, anywhere from connecting people to actual housing, to getting all the documents ready to get someone to housing, all the things that they need to get ready for that journey that they're gonna take around their IDs, healthcare, uh, access to employment. And so really our role as an organization is to, to step into the gaps with people and help them identify the individual barriers that perpetuate their poverty and homelessness, but also we have a really um, strong want and desire to also help educate our community and to be part of the solutions of addressing the systemic barriers that also perpetuate homelessness and poverty. Um, that's a lot of words. Uh, it looks like every day, again, just making sure that everybody has a safe place to call home to the best of our ability in the midst of, of our current uh, housing situation in Central Florida. Um, I'm a deacon in the United Methodist Church, and um, I um, have a passion around justice and how we bring justice about uh, what I see when I think about justice. I think about God's righteousness, what makes the world right, what makes the world like God wanted the world to be when we think about the kingdom and how we can bring that about here. And so that's how I live out my call as a deacon uh, in this work. That was your so quick notes. That was awesome. And Mary, <laughs> we've had you on before because you were in our Power of One. You helped us kind of with that whole um, creation of a, of a show, basically, is what we did. Um, and you're helping kind of guide and give us um, some advice on how to do Oliver in a new way with dignity. And because you are a pastor, I think this is interesting to have you kind of talk all around this. And I'd really like to ask you the question. So in the gospel of John, we're talking about incarnational ministry, um, the incarnation that God came with to us with skin on and moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says, how is your work can you make the connections for us who may be a little bit slower on how that is incarnational ministry? Well, I think you said it, uh, you moved into the neighborhood. Uh, one of the things that makes our work so powerful is that we are committed to doing it right where the people that we work with live, right where they are experiencing life and experiencing life with them. I mean, when Jesus came and was incarnation for us, he did not just float around, right? Jesus lived life, uh, lived life abundantly and fully around, showed people by example how life could be lived. And we get to do that same work. We get to show that, um, that ability that there, there is more uh, than what just is someone's current situation. So many people that we work with, they are 
what I often say, stuck in a survival mode mentality. Life uh, does not look like abundance. Life does not look like a lot of hope. Uh, life looks very hard, uh, very painful. And it causes people to uh, really just kind of zone in on not a bigger picture of life, just kind of what they can do next to survive. And what I think incarnational ministry does is remind people, first of all, of their belovedness, uh, that uh, the number one thing Jesus did when he moved into the neighborhood is he reminded people how much they were loved um, and how much they were seen by God. And so for us, that, that's going to be our first thing is we're going to remind people that their dignity and worth is the most important thing about them, uh, that they are not their trauma, they are not their situation, uh, they are not the thing that they're currently trying to survive. Uh, so that's going to be the first thing that we're going to do in our work. And then we're going to dig deep and, and figure out how we get from survival to, to thriving. How do we get from a place where you're not just living minute by minute, but can think about, I like to always say, um, I'm sure people have heard me say this before, but people think about their wishes, hopes, and dreams. What does a future look like? Um, and I think that, that that is incarnational. I think that Jesus was not only um, past-focused or only present-focused, but also future-focused. And so when we think about setting down and living among anyone in any circumstance, um, we do that by acknowledging that um, we are part of each other's stories and that that incarnational part of that story is being alongside. It's interesting you talked about that. Our our cast for Oliver did um, the cost of poverty experience last week. They they walked through, which many Saint Lucas have done, um, and and actually took on the role of someone in from our community who who is in poverty. And and they they expressed a lot of those same things. You know, in Cope, they talk a lot about tyranny of the moment and that need to live minute to minute. And and going, I can't I can't believe I made the decisions I made. In, in that simulation. And, um, you know, I think that element of dignity and that element of incarnation of putting yourself in someone's shoes, because it's so easy to go, you know, I want to help people, but it's a shame they made the choices they did to, to get to where they are, but to, to, to actually put yourself in their shoes and, and try to understand, you know, why they made those choices or when they didn't have a choice or when choice wasn't even on the table. Um, and, and I think that that speaks so much to the work that you all do of, of walking with people. Um, can you do a little bit of the, the, the driver's seat, passenger seat? I think that's a really beautiful metaphor that you guys use. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about, and that's really important to us when we're talking about people's dignity, um, in social service work and especially, I mean, honestly, in church mission work, we do have the mentality a lot of times that we think uh, because we're sitting on this side of whatever the, the person has experienced, like we're not, that we somehow know more than the people that we're serving. Um, we have this, um, you know, Melissa, you talked about the judgment. Um, and it's so easy for us to look at a person and just say like, why didn't you just do this or just get a job or just, just, just. Um, but oftentimes there are actually really good reasons behind that. And we do have some spaces in our own theology where we are rooted in kind of a prosperity gospel, where we believe that if someone is experiencing homelessness or poverty or has endured some kind of trauma that they must have deserved it. 
that they must have not done the right things or made the right choices or that they, um, that they're not capable of making good decisions for their life. And that's simply just not true. It is not true. Uh, everyone has the ability to make their own choices. We believe firmly in client choice. And part of that is this metaphor that Melissa mentioned that um, everyone that we work with is in the driver's seat. Uh, they drive the car. We can ride along with them. And sometimes we might be like the navigation system. We might say, hey, a left turn will get you there faster. But if you wanna go straight, we're just along for the ride. Um, and that's really important to people's dignity because when you think about your own life, you think about the choices that you made. Um, I often talk about, you know, um, every single person has made a poor choice. Every person has made a poor choice and it's just, right, it's just what happens in the response to that poor choice that makes a difference of what a future looks like. It, it matters about what kind of support system you have. It matters of what kind of relationships that you have, uh, where you live in the world, how you grew up. All of th those things affect us when we make our good choices and when we make our poor choices. That doesn't mean that someone deserves to be living in homelessness or poverty because their poor choice led there or their parents' poor choice led there or their grandparents' poor, cho poor choice led there. Um, poverty is generational in most instances worldwide. Um, it's only in a few instances where poverty is situational and mm -hmm. mostly it's, it's in the Western United States world. Yeah. That, that's just always, when I think of, in, of, of what incarnation looks like, of, of God coming and walking alongside us, we still have free will. God doesn't come and, and take right. the driver, take the wheel. Um, Jesus, take the wheel, right? Um, but, but God comes and, and walks alongside us and, and, you know, it, and, and starts to, to point us in the right direction and give us some suggestions and some nudgings. And um, so that's always just when I think of what y'all do, the metaphor that comes to mind. It is interesting, too, because scripturally, I mean, as you were talking, Mary, I mean, Jesus so often, especially in the Gospel of John, comes across people who are either asking questions or really don't want anything to do with them. And he interjects into their life, but he always leaves them in the driver's seat. I mean, he leaves Nicodemus in the driver's seat. He leaves the woman at the well in the driver's seat. He leaves the disciples, honestly, in the driver's seat of what, you know, we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to introduce an idea of abundance to you, but it's, but it's really what you do with it, um, which is really interesting because our scripture for this week in particular, so we're doing first two chapters of John, which is the incarnation and all of that understanding of that. But then it's also this, the first miracle where Jesus turns water into wine and everyone has a scarcity mentality, which is what, you know, you kind of talked about when people are hopeless, but I wonder, I, I want to ask you about those of us who are not in poverty and not homeless. Do we add to that scarcity mentality? Do, does our scarcity cause us to need you? Hmm, gosh. I don't think that question was written down on the paper. <laughs> um, here's what, what I'll say to that. Um, as a person who experienced poverty growing up and as a person who experienced homelessness um, as a college student, um, the answer to that is yes, we, we do. We do live into that um, because of our 
sometimes just our want to make things better. So sometimes mm. it really does come out of like really great intentions um, that people want to step in the gap. They want to do things, but then it can lead to paternalism mm. and going back to that conversation of, I know better than you. We can live into that space of, of being paternalistic to people who are in those spaces because we think we're not there, but we often don't allow that person to share how they got there um, and to tell their story. And so telling it, letting a person tell their story, we're, we practice trauma-informed care at our organization. So the number one thing that we're always thinking about is not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. And so that in itself, just shifting gears and thinking about what has this person experienced that has got them to this place in this moment is really helpful. But we also practice a scarcity mentality when we are living in abundance, right? Because we have this innate fear inside of ourselves that we could be that person. Yeah. And so we, we hold on as tight as we can uh, because we, we are so fearful of the scarcity that we right. might be there. And people like me who grew up in poverty and homelessness, like I have an innate of wanting to hold tighter, right? Because I, I to this day, fear insecurity of housing. Um, right. Even though, you know, I haven't experienced that in 20 years almost. Good God, uh, that's a long time. Uh, but, you know, I, it's still there. It's still inside of me because that's my trauma and that's what happened to me. And so that's what I carry with me. And so what we have to do is we have to do some of that work within ourselves to identify, well, what is that fear rooted in? Why are we not willing to, to support and give? Why is it easier for us to place judgment on this person so that we can step away and not hold any responsibility for what's happening in their lives than it is for us to engage in what's really going on? Right. I think we so often go look at the situation and, and, and we do, we individualize it. Like what mistakes did they make or what did they not have and forget that there's an, there's a systemic institutional communal thing that we are a part of, especially if we understand the kingdom of God, like, like for every app action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so if we believe that we can produce abundance to the kingdom of God, the truth is we also have to take responsibility for the scarcity we've produced, which I think is what, you know, the disciples were, everyone was worried. There wasn't, there was no more wine. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Mary saw abundance and went, Hey, wait, hold on. There's a bunch of liquid. <laughs> I got this guy who can do this thing. Um, but I think we, I think we cause the issues when I think about me and what I need to do to survive for me and don't think about the other. I firmly believe that we would not have poverty and homelessness in the world if our priorities was based around abundance, if we, if we worked in a way to see the world from abundance instead of scarcity, we have enough resources. We do, we, we actually do have enough resources. Um, they're just not where they need to be. They're not prioritized. So that's what was going on in Oliver. Um, it's interesting because, you know, we've got the musical that we're doing, but I've been reading the actual Oliver Twist, you know, Charles Dickens, and the, there's this whole food, glorious food where, you know, everybody knows the part where Oliver says, 
you know, more, sir, please. And, uh, um, cause he wants more food. Cause all he's given is gruel. What we don't know from the musical as much is it was a conscious decision to, to, to take people who are in the workhouses and to starve them because there was a surplus population as Charles Dickens says in Christmas Carol. You know, and so they they made a conscious, the board made a conscious decision, the board of this workhouses to just systemically starve these people. And so when Oliver is kind of chooses the last straw as the one who has to go ask for more, they're just appalled. Like, why would a poor person do this? What was it that you said, Melissa? What's the quote from the show? Um it talks about uh, uh, let let us face this case. It's unprecedented, quite utterly. He's disgraced this place. Mm-hmm. So that the even even the the idea that someone in his position would want more is a disgrace, um, not to him, but to the whole institution. Um, and and that that's 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 deep i mean and and they they pray ahead of time um you know when when they're giving the children the gruel they say for what you are about to receive may the lord make you truly thankful um not may you be truly thankful not may you find but but that that god would would make them thankful for what they were given and i hear so much of that in stories that i've heard from you mary of of where you know Jen, I think you said that in, in the book, it's it's the church that owns this workhouse. It's the mm-hmm. church that's making these decisions. Mm-hmm. And and seeing how those of us who who want to help sometimes um, get offended when our help doesn't help, if that makes sense. So where where do you see that kind of thinking? How do we as a church um, do better? <laughs> um, what what are those those examples of of how we we even though we might not say, you know, how what a disgrace someone is, there there can be those same attitudes still, particularly from churches trying to respond to poverty and homelessness. First of all, like the first thing that I thought of as you guys both were chatting is that what how are we starving people? Mm-hmm. You know, how and, and how are we doing it on purpose? Um and so that, that would be the first question that I would want, that I would love for churches to really address and to think about is what are we, what are we prioritizing? And the result of that is starvation. And maybe it's not actual starvation, maybe it is, but it's housing insecurity, it's lack of mental health support, whatever the thing is, wh- what is the, what is the thing that's getting the attention that that makes us feel like it's okay to starve, to starve them. Right. Ooh, so that's right, why like right. first thing that like came into my head is like, I just, because, right. because there is something, there is something else that's more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that would be the first thing. Um, the, the second thing is that And I'm going to shift gears just a teeny tiny bit on this. That's fine. But doing this work takes professionals, Mm. takes qualified people to, to do the work. And so sometimes my frustration around churches is actually rooted in 
folks wanting to come volunteer and not willing to hear how we do our work and how it is dignity filled and how we can't do just, and I know that that your team feels the same way, like people have to be trained. Um, you can't just come in and, and not learn how to do the work. And then yet some of the work still has to be done by professionals. I was thinking earlier today, we would, we would never say to a doctor about to go do a surgery, hey, hold on, this volunteer nurse is gonna come with you uh, who's never been trained before. Like we would never do that to, to that doctor. We would never do that to the rest of the surgical team. But sometimes we do that to those of us who are working in this field. And it is rooted again, I think always in good intention. Right. But then when, you know, someone in the field says, well, okay, hold on just a second. You know, we, we need to, we need to do some training or this is not the right moment for that. Or it's not the right time for that conversation. That is when our ego takes over and our prioritization of, well, I mm -hmm. came to volunteer so I could feel good. Right. Um, as a deacon in the church, I can't tell you how many times I have heard people say, get up and they talk about volunteering and how it makes them feel inside. And yes, that is a byproduct, but that is not why we do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, we do it because we care about the other person in front of us. We have compassion. We want justice for the person standing in front of us. Um, and we do that in a way that honors them even if it makes us still uncomfortable. That's the, that I want to jump in because just since I've been at St. Luke's, I've only been here four years. Jen can tell even more stories. We've changed things like the way we do angel tree. We don't buy gifts mm -hmm. for families anymore. We, we donate so that they can purchase gifts yes. for their kids. Yes. You know, we, we used to do backpacks and we would buy the backpacks and the school supplies. We now, again, give money so that we can buy the best backpacks and the right school supplies. And, and it, it, I, I seeing the bigger picture, appreciate it because it makes sure that, that when I, when I would go and, and buy angel tree stuff, which was so much fun and made me feel really good, mm -hmm. but I always did have that pit in my stomach. I hope, I hope this is the right thing. I hope this is what they right. want. When right. I could have just given the same amount of money or the same amount of time or whatever it is to, to give that opportunity for, for the dignity of, of that, that individual or that family. And I think that, that those are, those are when I hear what you're talking about, the, the little practical ways, even in small spaces that I'm really proud that St. Luke's has made those yeah. shifts and has been able to bring people along with that. Um, it's so important. It's so important. I'm a mom. I have three kids. I, I literally could not imagine not being able to choose their Christmas present. Um, yeah. It would feel so awful to me. And, and, and don't even get me started when someone gives you an already wrapped gift. Just know if you donate an already wrapped gift to my organization, I will immediately unwrap it. And I will <laughs> unwrap it and it will take me hours uh, of my time that should be doing something else, honestly. Uh, but I will unwrap it to make sure it's new, to make sure it's clean, and to make sure that it's right. Because oftentimes I have, un I, have I swear, unwrapped used toys and used underwear in beautiful mm. wrapping paper. Mm. And so I will unwrap every gift. So please 
save your wrapping paper. Donate that because we let families then wrap their yeah, own wrap their own gifts. <laughs> so I'll I'll never forget when we started to do the the gift shop in our in Eastern Garden, and um, I I used to wrap presents for a living um at Christmas and so we would go and the parents would pick it out and I would say you know would you like me to help or would you like me to do it and they're like oh no you, you do it um which brought me great joy but it was mm -hmm. so beautiful to see them so excited about what they got to pick and that you know we worked to we would work together and do it do it together and just the just the pride that they had um, that they were going to be able to take these and put them under the Christmas tree. It seems very small to us, but it's a very important thing. Like you said, when you internalize it and make it your own, which, which goes back to it, the giving and how do you, how do you surrender and give what is the best for another person, which is exactly what Jesus did right at the end of the whole water turning to wine. It, it, it tasted like the best wine which was uncommon in a party. You left the, you know, like all of us would do, you know, you kind of, people's taste buds are dead by the end of the party. They're not gonna notice that you give the cheap <laughs> wine, but this was the, the best wine. And, and what does that mean today? What does that look like for us, Mary? What does that look like for the church to have that um, kind of mentality of giving our best to people and to your, your nonprofit? I mean, I think it's clear. Um, I think that it changes the dynamic when we think about the person in front of us deserving the best and not just deserving what's left. Um, that doesn't mean that, and I think sometimes in these conversations, people get very frustrated because it can be hard to hear that the thing that you did, the trip that you went on, the, the gift that you gave did not have the impact that you hoped that it would. Mm -hmm. But when, you know, as my Angela says, when we know better, we do better. Right. And so when we know that our intention and our impact matter to people and that we no matter our social economic status, no matter how we got there, no matter what choice was made yesterday or made 50 years ago, the person standing in front of you still deserves the best because we all deserve the best. That is what abundance is actually about. Uh, mm -hmm. That is what Christ said he came for abundance uh, to give you life and to give you a, give it to abundantly. And so, how can you how can you look at someone when you know that those are the words of Christ and, and not think that they deserve the best, even even if they don't even see it yet? Right. It's a very that's a very hopeful word. <laughs> so let me ask you, what is your hope for us as a congregation, as a community, by presenting Oliver in the way that we're doing it? How do you think? What, what's your hope as someone who works as the professional? What do you hope that we will lift up by doing this publicly? We have a housing crisis in this community. There is not a single person who doesn't know that at this point. Even those of us who own our homes, 
We know our homes are worth far more than what we bought them for. We know that there are many of us who would not be able to buy the homes we're sitting in today at the salary that we are at, right? Um, we have to talk about that and we have to hold each other and our community and our government accountable to what is happening. Um, I love something that you all always talk about. You say we are responsible for what happens next. Yeah. We're all responsible for what happens next. Um, I have reports today from people who work on my team who are making far above the living wage, who cannot find a place to rent. It's not just the people that you think about who are holding right. a sign. Right. It is affecting all of us and we can't hide. Right. And so by doing this, this gives us an opportunity to start talking about that, calling attention to it because it will not change until people start really saying that we have to make a difference, that we have to make a change. That's not awesome. as tangible as I'd love it to be. I'd love to say donate, you know, we have a shower trailer if you like hygiene items, like that's wonderful. Also, we can do more. Right, because there's more than enough. That's what we're, yeah. Yeah. we've been trying to focus on this this year is that there is more than enough. And you're right. If we lived into this idea of the kingdom of heaven, there would be enough. It, yeah. I agree, and, I agree. And and to, to echo some of Mary's sentiments and to add to them too of, you know, I, I know Mary and her organization and, and what they do, and they would love to be put out of business because every, there was more than enough for everybody. Mary would be yeah. thrilled to be looking for another job. What um, I always <laughs> say is I have the smartest team. And when we solve this thing, we can go to work on something else. Absolutely. Like, yep. yes, super, super intelligent, wonderful people who work for me. And all of us could use our brain power somewhere else if we didn't <laughs> have this issue going on in our community right now. Yeah. So you are going to be preaching for us. So you're going to, we're going to see you again, Mary. We're going to see you in, I think it's two weeks and on the 17th, um, you're going to come and preach for us at worship. And so we're really excited. You're going to be preaching on the feeding of 5,000 and that idea of where is faith. Um, so we're really excited about that. And then you're also going to be a part of Oliver, probably one of the nights to do a talk back session. Um, and so we're super, super excited to be partnering with you all. Um, and, and, and like you said, presenting the problem and allowing the community to come together and begin to be a part of the solution. So thank you so much, Mary. Um, we're excited that you're with us on this venture and we will be together on Sunday morning for worship. We hope you'll come, um, as we punctuate this story of, of water and wine and whatever we will do with it, we know God is going to give abundance and we'll be together next week on your week with St. Luke's.